Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. We have these Stone Age Pleistocene brains, and we have evolved to play this kind of status game with 150 people, because that's, that was the size of a human tribe. And now because of social media, on Instagram especially, we're playing a status game with the whole fucking world. You know, and it's not just the whole world, it's the best of the whole world. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. And I'm beginning today with a question: Who the hell are you? Uh, I mean that not like from me, but but literally to, to ask yourself like, who are you? Like, what are you? What what is this thing you think of as a self? Um, I say this in the episode. This is definitely in the top five Ezra Klein shows to listen to. Stoned. If you if you happen to be stoned, you're I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I read this book recently by a British journalist named Will Store. And it's called Selfie, which might make you think it's about uh, selfies and taking pictures of yourself. But it's actually about how the idea of the self has developed culturally and to some degree neurologically over the course of human history. And it's a, it's a really mind-bending book. And I think even more so if you have been obsessed with some of the questions of attention and meditation and how social media is affecting our ideas of, of ourselves that I've been recently. And I, I just found, I found the treatment of the self in this book to be really mind-expanding. And so I wanted to have the author of it, Will Store, on the podcast because I think there's something freeing in this. I think there's something freeing in recognizing that the self is not just one thing and it is often not in our control. And I think there's something freeing, not just in our own lives, but actually politically, in recognizing that how we think of ourselves is extremely culturally mediated. And how we justify what the self is doing is um, an extremely unusual neurological process. It is not a, a process of pure rationality. And when you kind of add in those factors into the equation, some things become possible in the culture and in ourselves and in politics, and it becomes clear why some things aren't. And it also, I think, helps explain why things are possible in other places at other times, and they're not possible here. So this is a very fun conversation. I, I want to note, um, Will also has another book I think that is super relevant to this called The Unbelievers, which is about how people end up uh, unpersuadable on matters of basic science or the world around them, how people can believe really crazy things and why having those kinds of beliefs make sense. These are both books that I think help uh, illuminate a lot of the issues that, that we obsess about on this show. Will, as you'll hear, is a great guest and a great storyteller, and I am excited he was able to take the time to do this. As always, you can email myself at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. So here, without further ado, is Will Store. Will Store, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ezra. I wanted to begin with something you say deep in um, your newest book. You write that one of the most surprising things I've come to realize on this long and startling journey is that storytelling is a form of tribal propaganda. You're a storyteller. You're, you're a damn good storyteller, actually. So what do you mean by that? Oh, that's a big question <laughs> to start off with. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so, so you, you've got to go back right to the beginning of um, uh, really sort of uh, kind of human evolution uh, as it manifests in That's crime. a big answer to start with. 
Yes. <laughs> and, um, and, and so the current kind of dominant theory in psychology is that the reason human language evolved in the first place um, is to swap stories. And that's because we're this kind of highly highly social ape you know we, we're an ape that has managed to kind of dominate the planet because we are incredibly good at cooperating with each other but that's a difficult problem to solve because obviously humans aren't uh, perfect <laughs> we're often but not always selfish you know we're living in tribes of around 150 people so the question is how do you how do you um, manage other people's behavior how do you make it so that people's selfish interests were reined in and they acted as much as possible on behalf of the tribe rather than the self and the answer is that you swap gossip you tell stories about each other so that's why human language evolved is the current idea and so in those gossipy stories selfless behavior which is so when people put this the tribe's interest before themselves would be kind of heroized in a sense they'd become the heroes of the stories in the gossip but selfish behavior people who put uh, their own interest before the tribes would be the kind of the villains of these stories. And then when we would hear these stories, we would respond with a very specific emotion, which of course is moral outrage. And moral outrage is a very interesting emotion because it's, you know, we're awash with it in this day and age. Um, but what moral outrage motivates you to do is to fix that problem, is to change that person's behaviour in one of three ways, either humiliation, ostracization, or violence. And, you know, and of course we still we're still those sent animals, you know, obviously we still, you know, storytelling still uh, often, especially in social media and, and in printed media, creates moral outrage and that moral outrage motivates us to act in exactly the same ways. So that's, that's why I say, say that storytelling is tribal propaganda. It's there to kind of coerce us in a sense. It's there to say to us, if you behave in this way, you're going to get rewarded. You're going to be, you know, valorized as a hero. But if you behave in this way, you're going to be punished and it's going to be bad. What, what seems interesting to me about that, and it's something you draw out a lot in, in the book, is that which stories we tell and which stories we become used to telling filter the world for us. So I, I think there can be a tendency when you're reading a story to think you're reading some version of the truth, and, and maybe it is some version of the truth. But you have a, a lot in the book about the way our idea of ourself and the way our idea of our relationship to, to others is very culturally mediated. And the idea that stories are the kind of filtering mechanism through which we get those cultural lessons is interesting to me. Can, can you talk a bit about the way stories differ from, from culture to culture to, to make that possible? Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 so you can kind of see – you can, I, 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 sort of simplistically, you can see kind of human um, kind of behavior happening on those two levels. And the, fir the, the first level is biological. So, so there are the things that we have been doing for so long, it's become baked into our brains. And, and that's that kind of very basic rules about how to, how humans get along. And, you know, like the Darwinian, all, all living things want to survive and reproduce. And humans have a very specific way in which we solve that problem with this, as I said, with this social creature that live in tribes. So we do that groupishly. So that gives us these particular brains that, that are kind of designed to solve that problem in a certain way. And these are basic things like the universal moral axis is selfish versus selfless for the reasons I've just outlined. And, you know, we tend to favour our group before ourselves. So these, these are the kind of very basic ways. So, so these are the commonalities that you'll find in storytelling all across the world. But on top of that kind of basic biological level, humans are born with this kind of semi-finished brain. And we have these hugely extended childhoods. And the reason we have these extended childhoods is because the, the power of, of our, our own kind of local culture is incredibly important to who we are. So uh, over this kind of basic universal human brain that we're born with we have a couple of decades in which 
our local culture kind of asserts its own kind of power. And these are the kind of local stories that we kind of you know, build on top of those kind of, you know, very basic kind of biological universal stories. So as, as I said, you know, all around the world, the moral axis is selfish versus selfless. And the tribal propaganda is saying, be selfless, um, don't be selfish. But on top of that, you've got all culture and culture is telling you, okay, it's answering those questions in a more specific way. It's saying, okay, so if I want to, if I want to kind of, um, be a kind of a virtuous member of this particular group, how should I act? And, and, and what I do in, in selfie is I, I, I specifically look at the differences between how people in the West solve that problem and how people in the East solve that problem. And I look at that because that's what psychologists have been doing for the last sort of 10, 20 years with very interesting results. And, and of course, in a nutshell, in the West, we're individualists. So we kind of prioritise ourselves as individuals. And in the East, they're, they're, they're far more kind of community, kind of groupish in their kind of uh, cognition. So on top of that kind of um, but those basic biological levels we have, you know, culture kind of mediates bio, uh, biology. It kind of shifts its emphasis. This is something that came up in a podcast I did a couple months back with Michael Pollan. Um, we were talking about both psychedelics and the structure of the, the, the human brain. But this idea that when we tell these stories, when we absorb these stories, that it's not just a narrative we're getting, but it actually affects how we see the world. It literally affects the structure of our brain. This is something I, I think is a little bit hard to grok, including for me, who's done a lot of reading into it now, that the cultural context in which we grow up, it, it changes what we notice. It changes sort of what parts of our brain and what parts of our perception are, 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 are really strong. And so it mm. like literally does change our experience of the world. It isn't just a narrative. It, it, it becomes yeah. – it, it acts upon us. It's not just something we act upon. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, this is this is really stuff that's changed the way that, I mean, once you know it, you it changes the way you experience everything. Yeah. But I think, but to understand it properly, you've got to understand that, you know, reality itself is a, is a construction by the brain. You know, we think that we're seeing out of our eyes, like our eyes are these windows, and we think that the noises of life really tumble into our ears. But actually, everything that we experience out there it is they call it like neuroscientists call it a controlled hallucination. It's all happening inside our heads. So it, it's this kind of construction. So and as you say, part of what we notice, part of how we build that construction, is is mediated by our culture. And and so one of the ways that they they look at this, which I think is fascinating, is that they so the way that, the way that we build this controlled hallucination is that our eyes move um, incredibly quickly. It's, it's the fastest movement in the human body. It's called a saccade. We do four to five saccades every second. And that saccade is, is, is your eyes kind of scanning the environment incredibly quickly, building up this kind of hallucination and to, to kind of fool you into thinking that's the real world. And depending on your culture, that kind of mediates um, uh, where your eyes being sent. So, so in the West, we're individualists and we're, we're raised in this culture, which has, has a conception of reality that is made up of individual pieces and parts. And that's what we focus on, individual objects and, and things in space. So we're not very good at understanding how things work in kind of context and how things work in systems compared to people in East Asia who were raised in the Confucian culture, which is all about the group. It's all about how one thing kind of connects to another. So what, what happens is that you put an East Asian person in a, in a lab and you show them a cartoon of a fish tank. For some reason, they do lots of experiments with animations of a fish tank. And, and, and this particular one has this, it's, it's an animation of a fish tank. And there's this big kind of flashy orangey fish in the front of the fish tank. Um, and there's all fish all around it. And if you put an East Asian person in front of that kind of fish tank and track their saccades, their saccades, their eyes are going to be constantly moving between that fish and everything else in that context. So they're going to be seeing literally the, the, the hallucination of reality they're building in their 
brains for them to experience as the real world has far more information about context in it than the Westerner who was more likely just to focus mainly on the fish. And this is really important. It has really important hugely important ramifications for how we experience, say, the moral world. Because then what happens is you take them out of the lab and you say to the Western person, well, what did you see? And the Western person, it, it, their description is, is more likely to begin with, well, that's a fish. And then the East Asian person is more likely to say, well, there was a fish tank and there's always fish in it. They'll just start describing the context. And then you say to them, well, what did you think of the fish? And the Westerner will go, well, that fish was obviously the leader because we're an individualist and we like the individual. You know, I like that big fish. It was the leader. It was the kind of, you know, the head of the crew. Whereas the East Asian person will go, well, I felt sorry for that fish because it was obviously been kicked out of the group and it was lonely. So, you know, from these kind of very kind of basic different ways that, that culture makes us experience reality, we end up with these very different moral worlds you know one of the one of the ramifications that was spoken to me by professor richard nisbet who's this psychologist who's the kind of pioneer of this uh, this kind of area we was talking about how in east day there were lots of good things about the east asian worldview so for example when you study news reports of spree killers in the west versus the east in western language newspapers because we're individualists and we blame the individual on everything the news reports are full of us blaming that person they were evil nasty person and and, and they did the spree killing because they were horrible whereas the east asian news reports are going to be far more aware of kind of context um so it's they had you know they had a bad day at work they fell out with their boss they were their marriage had fallen down so they're far more aware of the kind of contextual situational things that push that person to do that horrific thing which which I would argue is kind of a, is a wiser you know, mode of thinking. It, it, you know, it's much kind of smarter, it's much, more, it's much more compassionate. But the dark side of that is that, of course, in East Asia, they're far more likely to accept the idea that an innocent individual should suffer as long as the group benefits in some way. And of course, you see that, you know, the ramifications of that in, in modern China, you know. So, 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 you know, it's one of those areas where it's such a complex system of trade-offs you can't argue that individualism is good or bad or Confucianism is good or bad. They're both good and they're both bad in very important different ways. So this is definitely going to be in the top five episodes of this podcast to listen to Stoned. <laughs> and, I, and, I want to make it, and I want to make it better here because I want to talk about the way we are our own storytellers. I thought the absolute most mind-fucking part of your book was these studies on people whose right and left brain hemispheres have been severed. Oh. And the results of them really seem to call our basic experience of the world into question. So can you tell me a bit about them? Yeah, this, this was the kind of thing that, that I, when I read about it, it completely, as you say, it blew my mind and it, it stops you seeing yourself and other people in the same way again. And, 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 and it's quite a complicated idea, but, but I think the, the, the best way of thinking about it is to say that, you know, we all have, you know, one of the things you hear a lot about is the brain is a storyteller. And that is, that's not just a cute kind of idea. That's, that's literally true. And it's literally true on, on lots of different levels. And, you know, the first level being the fact that the, the reality that we experience is this construction. But uh, another one is that that voice that we hear in our heads all the time that narrates our days and tells us why we're doing what we're doing and why we're thinking what we're thinking. That's also a storyteller. It's a narrator that's narrating our days and explaining everything about us, telling us everything that we need to know. And so that kind of led to a couple of neuroscientists, Professor uh, Roger Sperry and Michael Gazaniga, kind of asking an important question, really. And it, was, it was a weird question. And the question is this. So if we've got this voice in our heads, this narrator, explaining everything that we're doing and telling us what we're doing, what would happen? Just imagine if you could implant an instruction into someone's brain, say, to tell them to get up and walk. And you could somehow hide it from that narrator. So the person got up and walked, but the narrator didn't know 
where that instruction had come from. So what would happen? And they managed to do this. And they managed to do this by experimenting on what are called split brain patients. And split brain patients are people who have such bad epileptic fits. They're called grand mal seizures. And what that means is that a, a small amount of electrical disturbance occurs in one part of the brain. And it becomes global. It spreads throughout the whole brain. And these kind of crazy scientists back in the 60s decided to do in order to sort of stop this happening, they would cut people's brains in half. They would sever all the wiring between the two hemispheres. And that gave um, Gazaniga and Sperry this opportunity because most of the speech and word-making circuitry in our heads is in the left hemisphere. So they call the narrator the left brain interpreter. It was this thing that happens pretty much only in the left hemisphere of your brain. So what they did was they, they got people who'd had split brain um, experiments. And by the way, these, the split brain experiments worked. They solved the medical problems of the epilepsy. And also the people who had lived perfectly normal lives, incredible as that sounds, with their brains cut in half. So what they did was they got this sign saying walk. And, they, and because of, you know, one eye goes into one hemisphere and the other guy's eye goes into the other hemisphere, they kind of flashed this sign saying walk into this guy's let me get this right, right eye, no, left eye, so it went into his right hemisphere. And because it was stuck there, it, his little voice couldn't say, oh, you've just seen a sign saying walk. He got up and he walked and I said to him, well, why are you walking? And he said, well, I'm going, I'm thirsty. I'm, I'm going to the kitchen to get a Coke. So what happened was his, his narrator had made up a completely fake reason that to, tell, to explain why he was getting up and walking. Um, uh, that he instantly believed. And this kept on happening. They call it a confabulation, his brain confabulated. So they got one woman and they showed, showed her a 1950s kind of topless pinup calendar and she kind of blushed and started giggling. And they said, why are you giggling? And she said, oh, because you, you scientists with your crazy machines. So again, her voice, that voice in her head had made up this completely fake reason to explain what she was thinking and, you know, emotionally going through. And she immediately, uncritically accepted it. Another woman, they showed her a kind of a disturbing film of a woman in a fire and um she became obviously agitated and disturbed and they said why were well, you looking a bit anxious and she said oh because you don't know why dr gazaniga is a really nice guy but for some reason he's really disturbing me, me right now so what was happening was that the brain the storyteller is just instantly giving make sense explanations about why people are doing what they're doing and why they're thinking what they're thinking and we are uncritically accepting them. Now, the disturbing thing about this is that we all confabulate all the time. So these people weren't having this experience because their brains had been severed. The severing of their brains had just enabled the scientists to expose the processes. So the truth is that we have no direct access to why we're thinking what we're thinking, why we're doing what we're doing. It's all a confabulation. It's all a make sense story. So you ask somebody, why do you vote left wing? Why do you vote right wing? Why do you want to be a writer? Why do you want to be a sound engineer? And, and they will give you a bunch of reasons. And some of them might be true. Some of them might not be true. The brain doesn't really care. It just wants to tell you this make sense story about uh, the, the, the kind of will make you kind of feel control in control of yourself and, and your life. And that, I mean, that to me is just an extraordinary idea. It, it's just so um, kind of powerful and disturbing and weird. And, you know, you, you see it happening, you know, every day. I always think when I hear about these experiments, you know, you're on a date at the, an art gallery and you go into the Rothko room and, and your date says, oh, and, you, and you're trying to impress your date and, and, and your date says, oh, you know, why, why do you like Rothko? And you come up with all these reasons why you like Rothko, because everyone likes Rothko. And you're just making all this stuff up to impress her. And that's what we do all the time. We're just constantly confabulating. Well, and, and for reasons, right? We confabulate to, to be to be in our group, to, um, you know, get the things we want. Like, I, I feel like this has a very tight connection to ideas about motivated reasoning. But before we get there, I mean, a lot of the conversation we're going to have today is about the construction of the self. And 
The thing that this does to me or says to me is that the way we talk about the self is really flawed. We talk about the self as a singular thing. We are our self. Like it's this one thing. Mm. And it seems to me that it isn't. I do a fair amount of meditation and I thought I've started meditating because I thought it would make me less stressed out all the time, which didn't really happen. I'm just stressed out all the time. But (laughs) what it did do was show me how little control I have or what I am thinking, right? This thing that like my brain, my mind, it isn't mine in the way that like this pen I'm holding is mine. Like I can do what I want with the pen. Like I appear to belong to my mind much more than it belongs to me. And this idea of like who – like how many of us are in here? I mean you get – you start sounding like a lunatic really quickly. But but there's something powerful here and I do wonder how much the, just the way we talk about the self, the way we conceive of the self as being this one thing that, 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 that we are the masters of or that we are identified with just creates a lot of confusion for us in our everyday lives. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. And I think you're right. I mean, this idea that we're one thing is, well, the first thing, the idea that we're in control of ourselves is just nonsense. I mean, you've only got to, I mean, try and stop yourself falling in love, you know, try and stop, try and force yourself to lose weight. You just can't do it. Try and force yourself to go to sleep. You know, we're constantly talking to ourselves. We're constantly shocked by the things that we're thinking. We're constantly telling ourselves off. I mean, you've only got to think about the human experience on a basic level to understand that we're not in control of ourselves. And all this confabulation stuff leads to a kind of a disturbing idea. And that disturbing idea is, okay, so if, if basically we're just behaving, we're acting, and, and there's a voice in our head, a narrator, that's just telling us this story that explains what we're doing and just makes us feel like we're in control and we're making decisions even if we're not, do we have any free will at all? Or are we, are we like, because you could imagine it like we're just automatic zombies just doing stuff. And the only reason we feel like we have any control whatsoever is because we've got this voice that's telling us that we have this control. I mean, you probably know that, that in academia, in psychology and neuroscience, the debate isn't do we have free will or don't we have free will? The debate is, do we have any free will at all? Or do we just have a kind of a marginal, conditional form of free will, which is sometimes called free won't? So the consensus view in academia pretty much is that we are mostly zombies. And the, the only reason that we feel we're not, or the only reason that we feel we have any control at all is that we have this voice. And of course, you know, it, it connects with what you just said, is that, you know, from one situation to another, we're constantly kind of shifting and morphing and changing. You know, I think ultimately what, ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to control the world in such a way that we get what we want. And I think in a human being, every animal has the different, different ways of controlling the world. And, you know, we, we humans, as I said before, we're highly, highly social apes. You know, that's our kind of magic power that we're incredibly good at, um, at getting what we want through other people. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Like in every social situation we go into, you know, our, our realm is the social realm. And what we're constantly trying to do is control the people around us such that we get what we want, such that they all the reputation and status that we desire from them and that, and that we give them, they give us what we want. And we're constantly changing who we are from, from, from situation to situation. You know, we're constantly uh, in such a way that, that we're constantly trying to sort of to get what we want. That sounds really like um, cynical and horrible. <laughs> I'm just thinking as I'm saying that, but I think that's essentially true, you know, but the, the thing that makes us feel like we're not constantly changing from situation to situation is this voice that's, that's, that's just stringing everything together, making sense of everything. And one of the big things that voice does is it's a, it's, it's a kind of a, I call it in my previous book, The Unpersuadables, The Hero Maker. It's this, it's this justification machine that's constantly telling you that you're right, you're right, you're right. And, and, and psychologists say that one of the most powerful 
psychological biases of all is the one that tells us that we're more, we're more moral than we really are. And this is something that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even really understood the ramifications of it properly when I was writing Selfie or The Unpersuadables. It's really hit me recently that, yeah, you know, that's right. You know, we, what happens is we, we behave, we do something, and then kind of post-factum, this voice comes up with all these brilliant reasons to tell us why we're right, why we're right, why we're right. And I think that that idea that we are a morally good actor is is one of the kind of preeminent functions that voice makes it always wants to make us make us feel like we're a good person and i think that's why clever people end up believing crazy things because the behavior comes first the belief comes first and then the justification comes afterwards and 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 smart people the smarter you get the better you become at coming up with these kind of reasons to justify kind of what you're doing well i recently had john Hyatt on the podcast who um is Mm. in your book and I was talking to him about some of his newer work on on sort of campus political correctness and that kind of thing. But he's got this great metaphor from his older political psychology work about the mind being this like elephant being ridden mm. by, you know, like a rider. And the elephant is like all the stuff happening beneath the surface. And the rider is kind of your conscious, your your I think what you would think of as your free will, although even how free that is, I think, is is up for debate. You know, just mm. kind of trying to make turns and stuff on the margin. And I've also that's actually a pretty good a pretty pretty good way to think about it. Um, it. It seems to me that like the the right metaphor for thinking about how how we're driving this this thing we're in is that what we think of as our will is one of many hands on the wheel. And it's like pulling a little bit, but there's hunger, there's sleep, there's desire for status, desire for sex. Um, and then even within will, there's like what we're motivating ourselves to believe is actually our will, what our culture wants to be our will. Like what we are is very influenced by it's it's a it's a it's something that emerges out of interaction with all these other forces. And even just being aware of that is hard. Controlling it is impossible. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the really powerful things, one of the things that, re- that, that uh, you know, really sort of changed the way I kind of thought about this stuff was, this, was all this personality work that's done in the social psychology sciences, this idea that there are kind of different kind of flavors of human. And of course, introvert, extrovert is the one that everyone knows, but there are four other ones. And, and it was only when I kind of interviewed um, this guy's called Professor Daniel Nettle, who's a personality psychologist over at the University of Newcastle in the north of England, that I really, you really begin to sense the power of personality. And the idea is essentially just like, you know, you're born with, a, you know, people have different size hips or different shaped skulls. There are variations in, you know, our hormonal systems, in our brain structure, and these tiny little changes end up having big effects on how we experience the world. And, and one of them is in, say, in, in neuroticism, saying that's one of the kind of five personality traits. And somebody that's sort of marginally higher in neuroticism, they'll have, that, that's a sort of small change in the brain structure. I don't um, want to particular... brag, but I'm very neurotic. I mean, uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most writers are high in neuroticism, high in openness. So they're like, they're right, like so, so the five are, it's, um, <laughs> it's um, openness, neuroticism, uh, I was blank on these because they're the, the, it's called the big five, right? That's right. Yeah. It's openness, neuroticism. And what are the other three? So there's openness to experience. Uh-huh. Uh, there's um, conscientiousness, conscientiousness, there's extroversion, there's agreeableness and there's neuroticism. So, 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 so one of the, I think some of the really interesting stuff in that is that um, a lot of this is a very powerful predictor of how we vote politically. So if you're high in openness, you're open to experience, open to new ideas, open to sort of new cultures. And that's a strong predictor of voting left wing, you know, and I'm a, I'm a lefty and I'm also high in openness. But being high in conscientiousness, uh, you know, it's order, structure, um, tradition, and of course, that's a, a powerful predictor of being a voting right wing. So even from these, you know, and, and a lot of personality is genetic. So a lot of the reason why we have these kind of 
political instincts and hunches. We're kind of born, we're kind of born with that. And yet the narrator, the storyteller in our head will give us all these amazing, you know, justifications and arguments of why we're right. And, and, and the, sort of the way I kind of think about kind of why we believe what we believe, especially politically and morally, is that it actually begins as these kind of instinctive hunches, almost like a hunch of feeling. We come across a fact and we feel something about it. And if you're a kind of a, a right wing person, it could be fear. And if you're a kind of a left wing person, it could be kind of excitement at seeing some new idea. And then what happens is you, you, you feel the thing and then, you, 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 you know, that, that, that feeling largely kind of dictates what your belief is going to be about that thing. And then only once that's happened, you start generating all this kind of complex, intellectual, clever sounding reasons to justify that feeling. But the feeling comes first. We believe what we feel and everything else is just confabulation. So there's this debate that's been going on about how much parenting matters. I was actually just listening to an IQ Square debate about this the other day. And it seems to me that a lot of it resolves down to this idea that in the past we thought parents really shaped the personality of their children. But at least when you're looking mm. from the perspective of these big five personality traits, it seems to be wired earlier, whether it's genetic or whether it's like, you know, very early or, you know, the, the, the interaction effects are complex, but it seems to happen really right at the start of life. And then it's pretty, then it's pretty durable. I mean, not that nothing can yeah. ever change. Michael Pollan's book is in part about actually how psychedelics can change some of these traits, particularly openness to experience. But mm. one of the thing, the idea that who we are is set up very early is interesting. But one of the things I want to talk to you about is that it also seems a little bit in tension with the idea of who we are is culturally determined, right? If our self is launched somewhat genetically, but our self is also defined by our culture, what wins out? Well, so g genetics aren't, uh, it's not kind of fait accompli. They, they set you in a, in, a, in a kind of certain direction. And then, and then you're kind of born into this culture. I guess the way I see it is that when we're born, when humans are born, their brains ask one specific question. And that question is, who do I have to be in this place in order to get along and get ahead? Those are those two kind of inbuilt biological human drives to get along with other people and to get ahead of them. And, and, and of course, in order to kind of answer that question, it goes to culture. But even within that culture, there are, there are kind of various subgroups. So we're all individualists in the West, you know, generally speaking. But that kind of sense of individualism is just sort of, firstly, it's just built on top of those kind of bi biological norms. But even with individualism, we have individual subgroups, of course, and the big ones being left wing and right wing. And um, kind of what your personality is, if you're an introvert, you're going to probably going to want to be a writer and pursue you know, those kinds of um, tribes and those kinds of ends. And if you're an extrovert, you're going to want to be a performer perhaps and pursue those kinds of ends. So I, I guess what you're looking at is that that's where the groups come in. You know, you, you're born into a particular culture that has these particular norms and these norms can be, you know, huge, there's huge variety of these norms, you know, all over the world in the more kind of austere sex of Judaism, as you know, I'm sure, you know, in, in Israel, women wear, uh, shave their heads and wear wigs, because they're so worried about you know, men glimpsing their hair. And in certain tribes in Papua New Guinea, they're, they're pretty much naked. I mean, they just the moral norms are just hugely, there's a huge variety. But that, that's the kind of cultural level. But on top of that cultural level, there are kind of individual kind of tribes, aren't there? There are, there are jobs we go to, um, hobbies we go to, um, political kind of groups we go to. And, and a lot of that is dictated by personality, you know, whether you're a nerd or a lefty or a righty or whatever. That's where a lot of that kind of personality stuff comes in. That's how I kind of see it. So it's, I guess it's like a, like a triangle with biology at the bottom, culture in the middle, and then it's kind of like these more local tribes at the, uh, towards the top. Support for this show comes from Mercury. Financial operations are needlessly complex. 
With Mercury, you can simplify them with banking and software that power your critical financial workflows, all within the one thing every business needs, a bank account. And with new bill pay and accounting integrations, you can pay bills faster, stay in control of company spend, and speed up reconciliation. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Mercury, the art of simplified finances. Michael Cohen, Trump's former attorney, fixer, and friend, testified this week in Manhattan. Todd Blanche is upset because he knows that he looks like a fool right now representing Donald Trump. It is the stupidest opening to a cross-examination I have ever heard, and I have heard a lot of stupid stuff. I'm Preet Bharara, and this week, Katie Fang, host of MSNBC's The Katie Fang Show, joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, to talk about the latest court news from Trump's trial. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to talk a little bit about how these selves change over over space. You brought up Richard Nisbet's um, work a little bit ago, and you have this great quote from him in the book where he says, the further west you go, the more individualistic, the more delusional about choice, the more the emphasis on self-esteem, the more the emphasis on self just about everything until it all falls into the Pacific. <laughs> yeah. What is t- – tell me a bit about that theory that as you travel west, we become more individualistic. Like, why would that be? Well, that's a really good question because I don't know the answer, nor does Richard Nisbet. I mean, he said he doesn't really know <laughs> why this is the case. Um, but that's just what people find is that, is that the more West you go. So we in the UK are, are much more individualistic than, you know, the people to the right of us in, in um, uh, Scandinavia. But then if, as you head towards the East Coast of the of US, you get more individualistic. And then, I mean, but, I mean, why that is, I don't think anybody knows. And if they do know, I, I've certainly not read about it. But, but, it, but it certainly seems to be the case. And, and, and actually, when, he, when I was talking to him and he was talking about, you know, until you all falls into the Pacific, I don't know whether he was thinking about the Essel Institute in particular, but that was certainly where obviously where I ended up in Selfie at this amazing place in Big Sur in California, just a kind of a hop, skip and a jump from Silicon Valley where, where um, it's still going. It's this place that was kind of the intellectual kind of crucible of the kind of human potential movement that was kind of bubbling up in the west coast of the states around in the kind of 50s and 60s and is still very much with us today and that was that, that that's this idea i mean i just thought this was for me it was really interesting that the birthplace of the western self is, is ancient greece and that's 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 what had this sort of incredible idea really and this really is against human nature that the locus of power shouldn't be the group it should be the individual very powerful idea um, and then that kind of gets moderated for a long time by christianity this kind of middle eastern idea which kind of makes us a bit more kind of groupish and a bit less individualistic and then that all changes in america in you know after the second world war with carl rogers and all these new guys I think the thing about the Christian era, that long Christian era, was this, was the, the, the essential idea was that humans are bad. We have original sin. Um, we're, there's nothing you can do to save us. We're just awful, wretched creatures. And then Freud comes along and everybody thinks he's this big revolutionary. And of course he is in a way, but he still thinks humans are bad. He said he starts banging on about the Oedipus complex and all this kind of really weird, <laughs> kind of weird ideas he had about kind of sexuality. But the, for me, the big revolution was America. It was, it, was, it, was, it was people like Carl Rogers who came along and said, no, that's wrong. Humans aren't bad. Humans are amazing. They're perfect. They're full of this kind of latent potential. And all we have to do is kind of strip away all the all the kind of pollution that um culture and society puts upon them and then once you kind of bury down into their kind of inner authentic core you're going to find this kind of perfect person and um and that changed everything it it became this hugely powerful idea and for my 
my analysis at least we, we we're still very much living in the human potential era, you still see all the time um, this idea. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. I mean, I was watching the film Into the Wood, Into the Wild the other day, really good film, and it, you know, he was saying, if you want to achieve your dreams, you've just got to reach out and grab them. And it's utter rubbish. You know, it's complete nonsense. Um, and it's, uh, in a way, it's a very toxic idea because you're just kind of preparing people for a life of kind of endless disappointments in a way but that's very much the culture that we're still in this this kind of human potential world and that's very much a kind of west coast it came very much from the west coast of america so i uh, you there's a ton in there so i want to slow us down a lot right here because i think this is <laughs> Sorry, sort of the yes, core right. of the book <laughs> and to make my interest plain one of the things i want to get at in this conversation is how different our conceptions of self can be because like mm-hmm. we are trapped in this one conception of self, I think you can feel like this is just how it is. It's just like what it feels like to be alive, what it feels like to be a person. But it mm-hmm. has felt like such different things over time. So let, let's start with this one because you brought up the Calvinists. Um, and you, you quote Barbara Ehrenreich in the book talking about how you know they, they believed you were basically a loathsome abomination constantly sinning yeah. against a disappointed God. There, there have been many cultures and, and we were one of them. America was one of them that believed human beings were fundamentally kind of bad. And now I think we believe human beings are fundamentally good, that if we could just like get rid of the, the stuff on top, um, you know, that we want to treat each other well, that we're kind. Can you talk a little bit about that difference between believing in human beings as like fundamentally good and trying to do the right thing versus fundamentally a flawed, fallen species? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, uh, okay, so um, as I said, it, it kind of all starts in, in ancient Greece. And this is this, 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 this always... incredible story, um, uh, you know, where, whereby because ancient Greece is this, is, is this kind of weird environment, it's not like a, a nation, it's like, it's like a thousand individual city-states and they're all dotted around kind of rocky outcrops and little islands. And so unlike most places in the world, we couldn't, in order to get along and get ahead in ancient Greece, you couldn't be like a farmer or raise livestock because there just wasn't, the, 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 the land wasn't suitable for it. So in order to kind of, to, to, to kind of achieve and, and achieve that kind of status that we all desire in ancient Greece, you had to be a hustler. You had to, you know, make olive oil from the four trees in your backyard or be a fisherman or um you know write poetry so that kind of individualistic self-starter becomes a ideal of self and and from that comes all this kind of very positive ideas about um you know um like aristotle said that all things are moving towards the state a natural state of perfection and of course one of those things is a human being and that um people should conduct themselves in a state of ennobled self-love so two and a half thousand years ago this is really we could recognize these ideas very much but then what happens is the ancient world kind of collapses you know ancient greece becomes ancient rome and then ancient rome collapses and in sweeps the christians uh, so it's the kind of the dark ages uh, in a sense and, and we and this idea that that we could be you know that we could be perfect so we should be perfect to get swept away um with the, you know with kind of inverted commas civilization and then and then christianity brings this idea as you say that we are that we're scum you know <laughs> that we're, that we're kind of these dirty reviled creatures and in the book you know to kind of really experience this i, I went to um, a monastery in the north of scotland called Pluscard Nabby, where they're still living, they're still living the life as they were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, and it was extraordinary, you know, you go into the, you go into the, 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 the church and they're singing these beautiful psalms in Latin and you pick up this little booklet which has the translations and it's things like, I am but a, I am but a worm, you know, and um, they're, they're, they're either singing about how they're just worms unworthy of even being glanced upon by the Lord or they're talking about crushing the skulls of their enemies. Like it's, it's really, unbe- it's really unbelievable stuff. Um, but, and, and that was us, you know, f- you know, for, for a very, very long time. And then, 
as you said, even in, even in the early days of the States, it was Calvinist. It was just a continuation of the same idea that people are awful. I guess sort of the big idea that, 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 that I'm following through self is the ramifications of, of the brain asking this idea, who do I have to be in this place in order to get along and get ahead? And in ancient Greece, it was this kind of hustling self-starter. But in, in the Dark Ages, we're talking about feudal, you know, we're talking about feudal life. And certainly in the era in which that kind of Catholicism was popular that I experienced in, um, in Scotland, you know, 9% of people in Britain were literally slaves and a lot of the rest of them were serfs, which were effective slaves. So in order to get along and get ahead in, in Europe at that time, where this form of Christianity was dominant, you had to be like a worm. You had to be completely subservient. You couldn't be a hustler because you'd be in big, big trouble. And you had to be a, like a slave to not the Lord in the sky, but the Lord of the manor. So that kind of sense of self that emerged from that almost like economic landscape completely fits. And of course, after the Second World War in America, that economic landscape kind of stops existing. It's a kind of new world, especially, I mean, I I suppose you could even sort of draw it back um, if you wanted to kind of further before that, as I do in the book. Um, I think the big revolution was, was, was the humanistic kind of psychology revolution. But even before that, so, so, so in the early days of the States, you've got the Calvinists and then there was the, you know, the revolution and you kicked us Brits out. And then a kind of a, a new kind of spirit of optimism um, arises and Christianity goes into this kind of really extraordinary place in America where it's like Pentecostal kind of faith healers and, and these kind of hustlers go around the country promising that people, they can make people rich with the power of their thoughts and they can cure them of their diseases with the power of the faith in Jesus. It's a really optimistic kind of idea of Christianity that, that hasn't sort of previously existed. And, and it's based on this idea that you are this all-powerful individual and you, and you alone possess, have inside you the power to succeed. And it's such an American idea that, I mean, if you kind of ignore ancient Greece. And then that, you know, after the Second World War, that becomes part of the psychological scene with this human potential movement. And again, as I said, you know, Carl Rogers is, is often referred to as the second most influential psychologist psychotherapist since freud and i think that's true you know he, he was really the, the the father of this idea of humanistic psychology you know this idea you still have this idea that, that we only use 10 percent of our brains and imagine how amazing we'd be if we could use the other 90 percent of it complete rubbish but you hear it all the times you know you hear, you hear it still every now and again i mean and that's very much um a product of this kind of new mood of optimism that comes out of the United States. One of the things I'm interested in there, and and this comes a little bit more from my uh, grounding in in American politics, but is what kinds of appeals are rendered valid or invalid depending on what kind of self we we see in ourselves. So uh, an example of this is that if we believe the self is great, Mm. then the idea that we might be complicit in things that are really wrong is rejected very, very rapidly. I'll use an example that doesn't get too many people angry because everybody sort of is on the other side of it. But um, people really don't like vegans, of which I'm one. Um, and just one of, and one of the things you'll often hear if you're a vegan is like, oh, like you guys are the you guys are the fucking worst because you're so self righteous and you make everybody else feel bad and nobody likes you. And if you wanted to get anything done, you um, wouldn't act like that. But you also hear a version of this in the conversation about like privilege or patriarchy or whatever it might be, where it's like, you know, even if that were true, you're not going to get anywhere by making people feel bad about themselves. You got to make people feel good. You got to make them feel like they're on the right side of things Mm. versus in these other periods in human life where it's been like, no, like the way you're going to change people is you're going to tell them they're terrible. And you trace this, I think, pretty interestingly, even within Christianity, from this sort of Calvinistic notion of being a you know worm in the eyes of God to modern prosperity gospel, which is like you are great. God does want you to be rich. You know, you you know you're you're right on the cusp of it. And as long mm. as you're you're in accordance with the plan, everything's going to going to be fantastic. And I'm not 
here to say sort of one is better than the other. But I do think it's interesting that um, in a world where we think of ourselves as probably on the wrong side of most things by virtue of being like little worms, you can have a very different kind of political discourse and a very different idea of you know what is demanded from people trying to be decent than a world where we start from the assumption we're pretty damn good. And so any criticisms of us need to uh, clear a very high bar to be taken seriously at all. Um, yeah, but I, th- I think there's there's something that, that I sort of pick up in that, and, and I think there's a sort of confusion perhaps between this idea of of that kind of hero maker narrative of us telling ourselves we think we're pretty good. I think I, th- I think that's that's consistent through all eras. People always think they're pretty good, but what changes is how do I have to be and who do I have to be in order to call myself good? And in that in those yeah. sort of dark ages, is well, I've got to be obedient and I've got to not be ambitious and I've got to keep myself where I am and not step outside my bounds, and therefore I'm a good person. So I think I think. All all through history, people have wanted to believe and have had this kind of hero maker narrative, this telling that they're a morally good person. But what changes is you go from era to era and culture to culture, and even tribe to tribe within a culture is who do I have to be in this particular little place in order to call myself good? I think, I think, so, so I think people always mm-hmm. appeal, you know, always feel that way. But it's, it's just about the roots to feeling that way is, is what changes sort of to locally. And I think one of the ways, one of the ways that, um, that I kind of think about, you know, you mentioned the idea of kind of veganism. And I think one thing that's always really interested me um, and still fascinates me, and it's something I could, I kind of posed it as a question in the Unpersuadables because I just didn't know the answer to it. But I think we're a bit nearer to the answer to it now. And that is, why is it, right? Why is it when we come upon people with different ideas, like I'm a vegan, that rather than kind of generally shrugging our shoulders and saying, oh, that's interesting, that person has a different perspective to me, which would be the rational and ordinary thing to do. But we, we react as if we, we've been threatened. We react with fury and rage. And we have this kind of, we're almost like neural imperialists. We want to kind of invade their neural space and rearrange their kind of cognitive architecture such that it matches ours completely. And I think that's where the, you know, the tribalism comes in. I think a lot of, a lot of the time when we are signaling our um, political and moral beliefs, what we're doing, it's like gang signs, it's like bloods and crips. We're signaling to other people, this is my gang, this is my group, this is my game. And just like when, you know, a blood sees a crips, do they still have bloods and crips? I'm showing my age, but just, just, um, you know, just, just as when a blood sees a crips sort of different hand sign. So it's all about, it's all about MS-13 now. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm showing the edge. Okay. So, so when MS-13 sees MS-12, is that a thing? MS-12? <laughs> you know, like, but you see what I mean? It's, it's, it's like kind of gang signs. And I, and I think, I, I think people take it as that it's a threat to their group status to have uh, someone not recognize their own kind of claim to status. You know, if you're saying, you know, I, I have this kind of particular set of beliefs, you're, you, what you're saying to that person is, it's these it's these rules by which I call myself a good person. So it's not eating meat, it's not eating animal products or whatever it might be. And so the other person sees that and goes, well, that means that the rules I'm following in order to call myself um, a good person and a person that deserves to receive you know, a, mod- a level of status don't apply in your eyes, which is like an insult. It's like, a, it's like hugely insulting because you're saying that, that, that my rules don't apply. So, so I, I think that's, that's why people kind of fall out because... It's it, you know it's tribal it's it's kind of gang signs and when you see somebody else express an opinion that doesn't kind of match your tribe's opinion it's this this threat to the rules of the game that you're playing that makes you feel like a good person. So my my sense of this research, um, which I've been doing some of for 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 my book, is that it's like a way to think about this: is there are in groups, out groups, and irrelevant groups. 
And so like mm. the in group can include a lot of different groups, you know, like I'm a, um, you know, I, I always do this sort of thing on the show, but like I'm a Californian and I like Apple computers, right? Those are groups that, you know, they can both be in the same circle. Um, yeah. You know, then you have like the out groups, which is New Yorkers who use Windows. Um, <laughs> and then you have the irrelevant groups. Uh, and so, mm. I mean, to use, I think, more more true versions of this, you know, Republican and Democrats are out groups to one another. People who like doing um, the home refurbishing mm. is irrelevant to both of them. Mm. And so one of the, I think, really interesting things in, in both how we navigate our social worlds, how we navigate our group worlds, and like how we navigate the, this world we're building is how do we decide when a group is an in-group or an out-group? I mean, I get, like I will say, I get why people don't like vegans because vegans are an out-group to almost everybody, right? The, mm. the core idea of veganism is you're being kind of a jerk, right? Or worse, right? You're doing something that is wrong. It's a, it's a mode no, of... No, I, I think it's more like you're, you're showing in your behavior and you're showing your set of beliefs yes. that, that, that you think how I'm behaving uh, in order to kind exact, of claim exactly. status is wrong and therefore it's an insult to my right. I, I'm, um, sense I'm, of status. I'm implicating you, but, but to take it off of my yeah. own, but to take it off of my own thing, um, you know, then there are things which can be like a little uh, perfectible. So like, let me give another example of it. There are a lot of productivity gurus out there. People who are, are very, I mean, if you listen like the Tim Ferriss show or there, there are all kinds of folks out there who think a lot about how to be more productive, how to be more efficient, how to be more effective, you know, how to live a, 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 a more tight life. Mm. And, you know, some people can take offense to that. And in many ways, like you can, you can read that as saying, oh, like I'm a lazy procrastinator. But we are often able uh, to to absorb that as part of the in group, like they're helping us, right? Or they're like mm. a, they're like an adjacent group. And I'm very fascinated by this idea of like how do you when do these things become near and when do they become far? You know, okay. on the left, there are yeah. all these things where um, you know it's like democratic socialists don't like more traditional liberals. They're much more in some ways on the same team than either are to conservatives, but the nearness can actually create in some ways more enmity. And yes. then at other times, it can create very deep levels of, of cooperation. I mean, Bernie Sanders has been not an official Democrat for a long time, but he cooperates very well with the Democratic caucus in the Senate. I think that space is really fascinating. Like, how do we decide which group we're going to see as an outgroup that threatens us or implicates us and which group are we going to ally with? Or does not care I, I, about. I, for me, the way I think about it is, to, is by going back to those literal tribes that we were living in when we evolved this neural architecture. Because you know, you've got to remember that, that we're experiencing all of that world that you've just described. We're channeling it and mediating through these tribal brains. And these tribal brains, you know, we still have these Pleistocene brains and we still experience our modern reality as if we're living, you know, back then, tens of thousands of years ago. And so, so, so what were those groups? Were those groups who were living in around 150, you know, there were groups of around 100 50 people that were living in a certain kind of roughly defined area and they, they were aggressive so each group had its own sort of local rules for culture so you know do, do x y and z and you will gain status and community in this group and then obviously different groups around them have different rules for, for, for gaining that same kind of community and status and what happened you know back in those days is, is that when one groups would start kind of nearing our borders then then you'd kind of probably enter a state of war and you'd feel threatened and, you, and you'd kind of go to attack them. Um, and also, you know, we weren't just defensive, we were offensive too, as we still are. You know, we want to spread our boundaries, increase our territory, increase our power. And I think that's, that, that, that's still how we experience kind of the world today. If you take a step back and you look around, we're still living in these groups that are constantly trying to expand their territory. You know, if, if for, for one part of history, it was religion. For another part of history, it's kind of nation. It was the era of empire building. And now we're in this era where it's corporations. But no matter which era, 
era of history you touch down in is groups of humans with a hierarchy trying to expand their kind of territory. And we, we become threatened, like it, I think, you know, you call it an outgroup rather than an urban group. When, when, when another group threatens our territory, threatens our sense of status. So um, one, of the, one of the ways it's really interesting to think about this is the Second World War, the, you know, the Germans' behavior in the Holocaust. So obviously the Germans went after the Jewish population, and they also were killing people who are kind of mentally ill and physically you know, disabled. But there was a difference in the way they treated them. So the, so the mentally ill and the, you know, the genetically disadvantaged, let's say, they just killed them. They just quietly killed them. It wasn't a big deal. But the Jewish population, they, pub, they humiliated you know, there are some, I mean, I'm sure I don't need to tell you, some unbelievably horrific accounts of humiliation. It was, a, mm-hmm. it was an ordinary thing, you know, that not just um, um, having their kind of beard shaved off in public, but, you know, having to kind of clear up the streets with their tongues. There was one story I read about them, some Jewish men being forced to um, clear up horse manure and then having the hoses put in their mouths until their stomachs exploded. And all the while, there's people playing accordions and taking photos, big party atmosphere. So why is that? You know, why was it the Jews that were humiliated and that kind of mentally and physically ill uh, people weren't? Well, because the Jews were the ones that were a threat to the German status. The Germans were in a terrible place um, before the Second World War. They'd been humiliated after the First World War. Their economy was in a mess. And they had this horrible story that became, you know, again, it's it's a story, it's a total narrative um, that the became dominant that all of that was the fault of the jews and the reason they the jews became such a powerful out group was that they were a threat to the german national sense of status and i think that's what you see i mean um you know windows and mac or it's not so much windows and mac anymore is it but say you know apple and uh, android are kind of foes and people argue bitterly on uh, endless online forums about which which is better because they're threats to each other's status i mean apple doesn't care about windows phones anymore does it because because they're they're an irrelevant group so i think that i think that's the key it's that the, the out groups are the ones that we feel are a threat to our status and and, and the particularly dangerous ones are when when an when a group that was, you know, lower status rises in status. And that, you know, that's what you see in, of course, in Rwanda and in lots of cases of genocide, where, where another group appears to have sort of rise in status, then you, you get these incredibly, incredibly dangerous um, tribal dynamics. It's loud, deafening, cacophonous. It's a nightmare. Oppressive. And just what is it that many people think is pretty nightmarish and yet are still willing to shell out quite a bit of money for a night out at a restaurant? Sound is the number one complaint that diners have about their experience. So why are restaurants so loud, and when did that start happening? Is there anything anyone can do to fix it? We've got the answers on the latest episode of Gastropod. All that, plus the science behind the perfect playlist to accompany your meal. This special episode is part of our new collaboration with the podcast Switched on Pop. Find Gastropod and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource isn't water or gold or even oil. It's data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. These transactions are mostly invisible to us and worth billions. What does that mean for us? What does it mean for society? Join host Rafi Krikorian, Chief Technology Officer at Emerson Collective, for Season 2 of Technically Optimistic where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. How do we advocate for ourselves and our privacy so that we can have control over our information and a say in how technology evolves? From surveillance to social media, 
reproductive rights to criminal justice reform. Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity, encouraging us to remain technically optimistic in the face of big data. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. You discuss quite a bit the way um, neoliberalism, a sort of an economic order, affects our conception of self. And in particular, the way sort of neoliberalism weaponizes or leverages, at the very least, our desire for status to, to sort of power an economy. But empowering the economy that way, it, it, it gets into everything else. You have this great quote where you say, we're bathed from birth in our particular economy and the values start to leak out in the things we say and do. Can you talk a bit about that? Can you talk about the ways ourselves are structured or shaped by the economies we live in? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so this is the idea that that basically selfie tracks. So, so I mean, the, the the idea that's kind of well known in the social sciences is the ancient Greek and versus the Confucian one. You know, who, who, who the kind of people that were that, that were that, that came out of East uh, East Asia two and a half thousand years, and the kind of people that came out of Greece two and a half thousand years ago. You know, that happened because of the uh, the physical ecology of the place that that defined the kind of jobs that we had to do and the kind of people that we had to be, and that defined our national kind of cultural character as it were so what i did was i followed that idea forward in in history and and, and as, as we've mentioned before look to realize that oh my god this version of christianity fits perfectly over feudal medieval britain you know we were slaves in those days we had to be subservient and then you then it gets much more interesting really because it's recent when you look at the 20th century so what happens in the 20th century and this was a completely news to me you know was that britain and the and america actually spent most of the 20th century in, in, in quite a collective state and so some, some economists call it the Great Compression because it was a kind of a period of inequality, if you like. There wasn't much difference between the haves and the haves nots, relatively speaking. And that happened because of, of all these kind of great shocks at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. The First World War, the Great Depression, you know, these big shocks that rocked the West. And we responded by becoming more collective. We hunkered down and we were like, we, we, and, and there were ideas like the GI uh, the GI Bill, the New Deal, the welfare state over here got created. So loads and loads of um, very communitarian ideas became abroad. You know, it was the year of unionization, high taxation. You know, taxation was as high as 90% in the States uh, over a period. It's quite extraordinary. And of course, so, so that collective kind of mode of individualism created a collective version of self. So, of course, in the 40s and 50s in America especially, it's the era of corporation man and corporation woman, the job for life, the, the, you know, the monkey-suited commuter getting pouring out of his trains. It was the era of the suburb. And then um, what happens is corporation man and woman have children and, the, and their children are the hippies. They're even more, you know, community-minded. They're, they're sitting on their asses smoking pot. They're anti-materialistic, anti-the man. They don't have no interest whatsoever in, in kind of work. It's all counterculture. And, you know, no coincidence that that's the era in which we become massively influenced by Eastern ideas, Zen Buddhism and, you know, meditation, all that becomes popular. And so that's all, you know, fine and lovely. The hippies carry on. But then until the, until the 70s, and in the 70s, the economies of the West start falling to pieces. Everything starts going wrong in the UK and in America. So the leaders of our countries have to go, bloody hell, you know, we've got to sort this out. We've got to come up on a new idea, a new system of ideas around which to run our countries. And the new idea 
idea that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher kind of embraced was neoliberalism. And neoliberalism, the new freedom, it's a return to ancient Greek ideals, essentially. It's saying, OK, we're all individualists again. Um, we're going we're to get rid of all those communitarian kind of policies and we're going to make as much of human life as possible a competition of self versus self. So in 1981, um, I found this really quite sinister interview with Margaret Thatcher with the Sunday Times and this journalist, Mar journalist asked Margaret Thatcher, said, what's your big plan, you know, Margaret Thatcher? And she said, oh, well, you know, what's frustrated me over the last few decades is that all the new kind of policies and ideas has been towards the kind of, you know, the community or the communitarian self, I'm paraphrasing. But then she said something really sinister. She said, um, the project is economic, but the object is to change the soul. And that is exactly what um, Thatcher and Reagan did. You know, by making all of human life in you know, this competition of self versus self, as in, you know, they went to war with the unions. Over here, it was the miners. Where you are, it was the air traffic controllers. You know, they, they, they got rid of as much regulation on banking and business as they possibly could. And of course, that kind of severing of all those regulations led directly to the global financial crisis of 2008. You know, so, so, so they really did, you know, they privatised all the kind of national kind of assets. So they really did, you know, um, force us all into this kind of new kind of mode of being. And in the psychological literature, you see the effects unbelievably quickly. So I think it was in 1983, Professor Jean Twenge um, found one of the kind of the early signs of this change was that um, in American um, maternity wards, uh, they did a study of baby names. And for sort of generations, Americans, like everyone else, have just been calling their babies normal names. You know, Victoria, whatever they are, Graham, I don't know. Um, uh, but then in, in, in the early 80s, that starts changing and parents start giving their babies unusually spelled or unique names. And as Jean Twenge said, because they wanted their children to stand out and be a star. You also see things like um, the sudden explosion of the Keep Fit revolution. Jane Fonda workout video. Jane Fonda, an alumni of um, the Essendon Institute, you know, her, her Keep Fit video sells a million copies and nobody can know why. You've got zero of Jim Fix. Everybody wants to look amazing too. And of course, we're still in that kind of era. And so the way I kind of think about it is that if you, if you think about who we were in 1965 versus who we were in 1985, it's an unbelievable revolution in the self. We've gone from these communitarian fuck the man, anti-materialistic hippies smoking pot to striding down Wall Street, twanging our red braces saying greed is good. I know I'm exaggerating, but you see the point. And so what changed in between those two dates and what changed was our economy. So the economy is incredibly powerful in forming our sense of, our kind of national sense of self. And, and, and we are now, as we were in 85, we are still neoliberals. We're still living in this kind of era of unbelievably um, strong individual self versus self. And, and you know, and it's getting harder out there and i think that's why you're seeing this rise of anger in you know i'm gen x but in the kind of millennials because it, you know life is harder for millennials than it was for my generation and you know it's getting harder and harder and harder still it's getting harder and harder to earn property it's getting you know the job for life era is well over now my feeling is that the, the reason we're seeing such political ructions at the moment and such an increase in tribalism is, is that this is probably the beginning of the end of neoliberalism. But I mean, I don't know what comes next, but, but that, that's my sense. Well, I wonder sometimes about the role of countervailing institutions in this, because to some degree, this was always the concept of capitalism. But one of the things we, you're saying, and I actually think it's true, is that over the last 40, 50, 60 years, whatever it might be, you can date it in different ways. 
capitalism become sort of an overarching philosophy. It's not just how we run mm. certain parts of the economy. It's how we kind of think about everything. And I mean, you go back and you look at the kind of debates we're having in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Competition is not taken for granted as a good thing. There's a lot of talk, including among business executives um, and, 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 and business leadership about the idea of destructive competition. You don't always want competition. And, you know, they're very different um, forces at play. And I'm not a religious person, but but I do sometimes wonder if religion and also to some extent community, because businesses were much more rooted in senses of place back then, if these two things weren't checks on, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like the overarching philosophy of neoliberalism, and that is religion and community ties weakened, it just like kind of took the rain, took the, the bridle off of that, right? There was like nothing left to hold it back. There weren't enough things pushing in other directions. Um, mm. There's this idea in political science about our identities being cross-pressured. You know, are you somebody who has a lot of identities that point in the same direction, like you're liberal and you live in an urban center? Or do you have identities that are in different directions, like you're liberal and you live in a rural area? Mm. And I, I do sort of think philosophically we were more cross-pressured, right? We had, you know, religion pushing against some kinds of capitalism, capitalism pushing against sometimes a com some types of community, and that we've had a lot of breakdown in some of those other cross-pressures, and now everything's like going in the same direction, and it and that's made the kind of path into like the, the distance between our impulses and our desires for status and competition and like society. It's like greased it too much. There's too little in the way now. I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and what also sort of really interests me is um, is the way that, you know, because you think about these ideas like neoliberalism as, as, an, as an idea and an idea is something you can you can either adopt or not adopt and you can choose to adopt it or you don't choose to adopt it. But these kind of very powerful ideas, I mean, I don't think they work like that. They, you know, we internalise them. They become who we are. So, in, you know, in the book, when I went to Silicon Valley and hang out with these sort of, you know, these genius millennials and they completely embrace this, you know, individually, the neoliberal ideal of of, of I don't want a job for life. I want to go from Apple to Airbnb to Google and that, you know, because I am, the project is me and, and, and the more experience I get, the better I am. Um, so, so they completely absorbed it. And actually just after I finished Selfie, I went into this story where I was reporting from YouTube's, um, you know, YouTube have these kind of series of kind of centers in which kind of influencers can go along and make the videos for free. And I met this, this young woman there who was just, I imagine that she was, really wealthy because she was a really successful influencer she was very talented she was you know she had you know all her all the kind of appearance stuff in the right place she she had a tv presenting job on on um one of uh, our terrestrial channels kind of offshoot music channels and to, i just assumed i was interviewing somebody that was incredibly successful and, and wealthy and then she mentioned as an interviewer that she lived with her father and i said well why do you live with your dad she said well because um i can't afford to be honest to live on my own and i was like well that's weird but surely you make all your money from YouTube. And she said, well, no, not really. Um, and I, it took a bit of pushing, but she told me she gets one American dollar for every thousand YouTube plays. And so, the, so some of the stuff I was looking at, some of her songs she was getting like $85 for. So of course, you, can't, you know, you can't live on that. So I was saying to her, you know, but well, this, is, this is terrible. And she was saying, no, it's not terrible because I make my money from sponsorship. And I said, well, how does that work? And she said, well, oh, well, there's this, you know, Nescafe just put out this brilliant instant coffee, right? And what you do is you take the lid off the paper cup and you put the hot water in and you get a coffee. And I was like, okay, now how do you promote that? She goes, well, I write a song about the coffee. And she'd written the song about the coffee. And I was just thought, what I actually said to her, you know, like, I'm, I don't be insulting, but in my generation, if Kurt Cobain could hear you talking now, he'd go absolutely ballistic. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But she was defending this as, 
as this is this is good this is correct that this should be happening and of course you know it, before the internet destroyed you know the kind of um, economics of the music industry somebody like her would have had a million dollar or half a million dollar advance from a major company that has spent sort of multiples more on that styling her putting her in a studio with a great producer getting her out on tour that have invested massively in her career and she would be somewhere way better than she is now so the interesting thing for me was that was that how she she, she just couldn't see that and she'd internalized all these neoliberal ideas of well this is just how the world is and she was kind of defending them to me as if this was correct. And I think that's kind of how it works with a lot of the institutions that you're talking about. It's, 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 it's hard to get to kind of work out where the cart is and where the horse is. And I, and I do think a lot of, a lot of it is that, that, that we, you know, we are now into two or three generations into this neoliberal era, and we just, we are, it's creating a kind of form of person that's just not that interested in these kind of communitarian concepts like church and community. Well, one of the things I, I think about when you when you say that is that, I mean, all these things are always a balance. Um, I don't remember if this mm. is your quote in the book or someone else's, but you talk about Westerners being more, and the, the, there are quote marks around this, delusional about choice in others and likely to assume yeah. that a person's failures are due to fail, faults in the self rather than yeah, that's biology self, yeah. or environment or situation. And one mm. of the things I, I think about that, because it comes up a, a lot, and I've done a lot of work on sort of European versus American economies. And what's interesting about them is that America believes it has much more social mobility. It believes that people's life outcomes are much more related to their own personal effort. And then, in fact, has somewhat less social mobility. In Europe, people believe there's a lot less social mobility and they have somewhat more. They believe outcomes are much mm. more um, out of their control, but they actually have, it appears, somewhat more control over them. And I do wonder, um, America over time has generally had somewhat better growth. If this isn't this sort of trade-off that, you know, whether we know we're making it or not, that having this kind of national mythology versus another kind of national mythology, this kind of tribal storytelling, not another kind of tribal storytelling, like we're telling a story that might be good for a country's overall economic growth rate. We can talk about distribution separately, mm. but it's like not good long-term for its soul. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's exactly the way that I think about these complex ideas. I think the mistake, the storytelling part of your brain always wants you to tell a moral truth. Is it right or is it wrong? Is it true or is it false? But whenever you're looking at these very complex ideas like economy and culture, it's always a trade-off. You know, there's always good effects and bad effects. And of course, the good effects of individualism is it's amazing to tell children they can do anything they want to do. It's amazing that we give all this credit to you know, Steve Jobs for inventing the iPhone as if he did it on his own, um, you know, because it encourages people, it motivates them. It, it, we want to kind of have them shoot for the stars. And, you know, it, 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 on the left, especially, we've, we're always kind of reflexively wanting to attack the West. But actually, you know, individualism is the basis of human rights. You know, we, we, we sacralize the individual. So there are lots of good things about it. But there are also lots of, you know, really, really bad things about it. And I really do think that a lot of the uh, these kind of startling increases in kind of mental health conditions that we're seeing over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, you know, again, it's very complex, but, but, but I do think, I do kind of pin that at some of the dark sides of this kind of more, this kind of harder and harder form of neoliberalism and neoliberal culture. Because what happens is that we're telling people increasingly, this is what a perfect looks like. You've got to be, um, you know, a fighter and a protector and a warrior. You've got to, you've got to inhabit the greatest qualities of both the sort of traditional archetypal genders You've got to be a perfect parent and a perfect, you've got to run your own business. You've got to have a body that looks like a Greek gods. You know, the bar is getting higher and higher and higher. And actually between kind of the first edition and the second edition of 
selfie, there's this major study was published by the University of Bath that, that looked at uh, measures of perfectionism since um, the 1990s. And the academic definition of perfectionism, somebody with suffering from perfectionistic thinking, is somebody who sets unrealistic kind of standards for their own kind of success. And levels of kind of perfectionistic thinking have gone up to an extraordinary degree. Um, so they looked at 40,000 students across UK, US and Canada. And between 1989 and 2016, uh, so to take one of their measures, the extent to which people felt they had to display perfection in order to, to secure approval had grown by 33%. So it's an enormous rise. And perfectionism, you know, that's the kind of dark string that links eating disorder, body dysmorphia, suicide attempts, um, uh, Can I hold you there abuse. for one second? Because I, I do think I'd like you to expand on that because I do think somebody could fairly listen to this conversation and say, well, this is a lot of interesting theorizing kind of about, yeah. you know, how people understand the self and what happens when you mess with somebody's brain. But in this world where perfectionism is really going up, we really are seeing an increase in suicide. Yeah. Like something is going wrong in people's psyches. There are other things that are happening that seem okay, like the kids are doing fewer drugs and following rules better. Maybe, you know, you can read it in different ways. But anxiety, depression, suicide seem like they're going up. So in order to sort of be perfect, they're not falling down drunk and off their tits on ease like I was when I was 14. So it's a trade-off. There are good effects and bad effects. But, you know, like I, I think, you know, the bad effects are are really important. There was an extraordinary metric that came out recently over here in the UK. We've got this reality TV show called Love Island. I'm going to go to Love Island. And what Love Island is, is they put all these young people on in, in this holiday resort and they film them over the summer as they kind of get off with each other. It's like a, you know, it's like a reality TV show. But the thing about Love Island is that all the guys guys on Love Island are unbelievably gorgeous and they have bodies like you would not believe, right? They are absolutely like Greek gods. And um, I mean, you haven't seen me as a podcaster, so... I would totally believe it. Yeah, yeah. No, and um, <laughs> and what you've seen, and and, and you know, I, I'm only kind of assuming this is. I mean, Love Island is like the biggest show in the UK, pretty much for, for young people uh, at the moment. And and over the, over the course of just two years, you've seen an increase in um, um, male bulimia of something like forty three percent. Really, just a state of two years. Yeah, it's just an extraordinary rise. I'm making. I don't make it clear. I'm making the connection to Love Island, but that is a big. That's a massive generational difference. Like when I was at that, that age, I was in uh, you know a gig venue watching bands drinking and taking drugs and smoking but this generation of young people are in the gym they're obsessed with again massive generalization but much much more so than we were are obsessed with their bodies and the sad thing is that you know women of course have been under these immensely kind of unfair and kind of torturous pressures forever but rather than from learning from their kind of mistakes and kind of pulling women out of it what's happening is men are falling are now falling in behind them and suffering from the same ridiculous pressures to look perfect. What, what seems particularly toxic here is the kind of social, the social media self-presentation piece of this. So I'm speaking to you from Northern California. I'm about, mm. I could get to Esalen in two hours from here oh, and cool. I could get to Facebook <laughs> in a lot less time than that. And we seem to have created, I don't want to say we exactly, but um, the, the technology industry seems to have created the single greatest set of engines for curating and then fearing that your public self is not good enough, like yeah. curating a public self that is meant to make other people feel bad, that does not truly reflect you. And then, then you cannot live up to, or you can't live up to what you're seeing mm -hmm. other people do. And like as an engine for making everybody feel constantly like shit, I can't imagine <laughs> anything more, more DVC constructed, even if it was never constructed for that purpose. Like I don't think people quite realized it. 
I've, no. I've, I've always loved Instagram. I think it's like, the, you know, the happiest of social networks, but I just took it off my phone because do I need to see everybody curating their lives on days when I'm feeling bad? Because like, that's not an accurate reflection of their lives either. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, and I, and I like what you, you know, what you said about um, whether or not they meant to, because I, I think that, that was the, one of the things that surprised me when I was doing my research is that, again, it's that story, these evil, it's like big tobacco, big tech. And I know there is some truth in that they've designed these things to be adi- as addictive as possible, but they're kind of, but it's, but it's we, the people who've decided how we use these things. You know, when Apple launched the front facing camera, they called it in 2010, it was launched as something that you could FaceTime your nan with, you know, but it was, it was us that decided that we would um, turn it around and take pictures of ourselves. It was Twitter when Twitter was launched, it was free SMS text messages. It was us that decided it was going to be this big platform for kind of tribal conflict, the, the, the one that it's become. And I think, yeah, it is, it, as you say, it's meticulously designed to make us unbelievably happy, partly because that's what that's how we've decided to use it. And, and one of the reasons is, I think, and I think this is one of the things that sort of really strikes me is that this that second fundamental tribal drive is to get ahead of other people. Like everybody unconsciously is on this constant quest to get more and more kind of status and the toxic thing about status is it's it's relative like you don't just you don't you don't just get status and put it in your pocket and that's your status your sense of status and 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 studies have found that that even your physically the state of your physical health depends on your sense of your relative status so it's an incredibly important kind of thing your status depends on the status of everyone else around you so if their status goes up even by standing still yours has gone down so we're on this constant constant treadmill and we we, again we've had we have these stone age Pleistocene brains and we have evolved to play this kind of status game with 150 people because that's that was the size of a human tribe and now because of social media on instagram especially we're playing a status game with the whole fucking world you know and it's not just the whole world it's the best of the whole world so you know we're flicking through instagram and there's beyonce and there's michael jordan and there's me you know and, and, and even though we know consciously that's beyonce and that's michael jordan that's my best friend at her absolute peak moments of fantasticness you know unconsciously it doesn't matter because you know one of the kind of fundamental ways the brain kind of measures how we're doing in our life is by comparing ourselves to the people around us so when oscar wilde says whenever one of my friends becomes successful a little piece of me dies and when morrissey says we hate it when our friends become successful they're exactly right that's how human status works so that's why you know, Instagram, especially uh, for that kind of status thing is so damaging because it, it puts us on this kind of competitive game with the best people, not only the best people in the whole world, but the, but the, the specific people that we're interested in competing with because they're the people we like and they're the people that are kind of leaders of our cultural worlds and leaders of our, you know, our, our political worlds. So that's really, really damaging. And then, of course, you've got Twitter, which is like a platform in which we compete for kind of that kind of... Um, the, the tribal status, it, not in a kind of presentational way, but in a it, it visually presentational way, but in a kind of morally presentational way. That's that, that's how that manifests on Twitter. And it's exactly the same thing. And Twitter's even worse, I think, because the opposite of status is humiliation. So the, the um, one of the psychological descriptions of humiliation is it's the removal of kind of all of your status at once. So it's incredibly painful to people because that's one of the, one of the things we crave. And, and, and Twitter is designed for that. So when we kind of signal our, when we, when we do our gang sign on Twitter saying, I think Trump's an idiot because X, Y, and Z, and then somebody else comes along and says, well, you're wrong because of A, B, and C, that is a humiliation. That's a tribal uh, attack. And, and it's humiliating because it's in front of everyone that's following us. So we cannot help but then argue back. So it's, it's just designed, we say it's designed perfectly to trigger us kind of maximally in terms of our evolved tribal cognition. I mean, but we've horribly kind of helped Twitter make it that way by using it in that way. 
You know, that one of the things I think is interesting as a tension out here right now, you talk in the book about Esalen and you talk about Esalen as the, uh, as the birthplace of the, you know, like positive self movement. What, what was it called? Uh, the, um, the, the positive psychology, the, the humanistic psychology. Yeah. The human yeah. potential movement. Yeah. And, and so it's a, a birthplace of a kind of one, one version of looking at the self, but, but also Northern California, Esalen, like this whole space. It has a lot in the history of like American Buddhism, um, psychedelics, and it's kind mm. of ego dissolving effects. There's, there's a lot here too about attention and not being so distracted and not being so tribal and recognizing that we're telling each other stories, recognizing mm. that our brains work in these ways. And somehow like this has been the soil in which the most distracting, tribal, kind of inhumane um, technologies have come, have come about. And it's this kind of interesting to me lesson about the ways things get away from us. You know, of the different tech founders, and I don't know any of these people that well, but like I think Jack Dorsey is a genuinely thoughtful person, um, the, mm. the, the head of Twitter. I, he's a guy who goes on meditation yeah. retreats and I think does a lot of trying to like understand perspectives that are not his own. And like when you listen to him in interviews, he's by far the most thoughtful and serious about the problems in his platform. And his creative is kind of distraction machine. This like distraction and tribalization machine. And the people on it, a lot of the people who are on it don't like being on it, but they feel like they have to be on it or they're addicted <laughs> to it. And like certainly other people have good experiences. I don't want to say like politics and journalism, Twitter is the only thing that exists, but also, you know, he created a thing that its primary, its most important product is Donald Trump, right? Its most mm. important product is like, like the person who mastered it truly is Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something about the way that, um, this space with all the currents that went into it, you so could have imagined it or idealized it as creating things that would have been, you know, undistracting, creating things that would have made it easier to like see what we really were thinking. That could have used all this knowledge about the brain and knowledge about the self to try to help us see things a little bit more clearly. And instead, it's like it is weaponized, this knowledge about the brain, understanding of how addiction loops work, feedback loops, understanding of how our desires for status can, um, you know, and our desires to tell a good story about ourselves and our relationships can lead to us taking all kinds of actions all the time. And it's kind of weaponized it against us. And in some ways, like maybe it could have never done differently. Like maybe that's just like the logic of, you know, whatever it is, neoliberalism or life or something. But there's something very sad about the whole thing, like in the in the moment that it's fallen into to me. Yeah. But and I think it gets interesting, as you say, when you drill down to the level of the individual, when you, when you drill down to the level of someone like Jack Dorsey. And again, it's that for me, it's that storytelling brain. It's that voice in your head that's always weaving that story as why you're, you're, you're a good moral actor. And Jack Dorsey has that just like everybody else has that. And I think one of the things that we talk, we, that we all of us, without exception, kind of underestimate is the kind, of, the kind of the ability of the brain to kind of fool us into thinking that we are good people no matter what we do. You know, remembering you know that the, the reality itself is this hallucination that flickers against the walls of our skulls. You know, we're not we're not in direct contact even with reality. So, so, so everything that we experience is this kind of heroic story. And if we're psychologically healthy, it's always wanted to tell us that we are, we are good people. So on the level of Jack Dorsey, you know, he's, he's building this business, he's doing this amazing thing. And day by day, moment by moment, he's always going to be looking for reasons to explain why he's doing the right thing, why he's doing a morally good thing. He's going to surround himself with other people that are kind of seeing the world in the same way as him when they're on this kind of great sort of mission together and achieving and gaining all this status. And of course, it gets to a point at some point when, you, when Donald Trump becomes elected where you have to go, God, you know, what have I done? And of course, you get this moment of sort of absolute clarity. But it's so, it's so hard to kind of pull yourself out of that story 
the story that you're telling about yourself. You know, we all, we're always sort of massively kind of susceptible to, 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 to that kind of heroic tale that we tell of ourselves. And I think that's such a trap and it's so hard to think your way out of that trap. And one of the ways that I kind of talk to people about it is that it, it's, it's a very simple kind of thought experiment. So logically, rationally, unless we're Donald Trump, we, we can accept that we're not right about everything, right? So you can accept that as a truth. And then when you think about the people around you, like your wife or your husband and your children and your kind of family members, you, th- you like them all and you kind of roughly agree with them. But then, you know, he's pretty wrong about that and she's very wrong about that. And God, if you get him started on that, don't ever get him started on that, you know, and that's how it works. And you move out of your social groups and your tribes and into kind of wider culture until at the edges, people are getting evil and horrible and they're monsters and they're you know, all the, all the kind of terrible things that we call people. And in the center of that circle is wonderful, perfect you who sees the world with absolute clarity. So you think, well, okay, well that can't be true because that makes me Jesus and I'm definitely not Jesus. So then you go on a little cognitive mission and you know, you can't cheat by choosing beliefs that you don't care about. You know, the, the beliefs that really matter to you, the Middle East, you know, women's uh, kind of reproductive rights, whatever they might be. And you go, well, I'm not wrong about that. And I'm not wrong about that. And I'm not wrong about that. And I'm not wrong about that. You know, the, 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 you can't find it. And the point about bias and the point about prejudice is that it's always invisible to you. You don't think it's bias. You don't think it's prejudice. You don't think it's delusion. You think it's absolute crystal clear truth. And anybody that can't see that crystal clear truth, they must be stupid or evil because it's so bloody obvious. And, that, and that's true of our political beliefs, but that's also true of the story we tell of ourselves, that this kind of, I did this because I'm, you know, I had these great reasons and this is what I wanted to do and this is the, these are the good effects that it's having. You know, it's, it, it's almost impossible to kind of pull yourself in any, any meaningful way out of that story because that story is reality itself as we experience it. I think that is a good way to sum up the argument. So let me bring us in for, for a close here and ask you the question as you stand the podcast, which is, What are three books you read over the years? Um, Could be about this, could be about anything that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience. Okay, yeah, okay, so I've got three. Um, So the first one I wanted to talk about is this brilliant book that came out over here. I think it's published in the States a couple of years ago by um, um, a, a journalist called Andrew Hankinson. And it was, it's a story, it was, it was a very, it was a kind of like a tabloid story here. It was, a, it, it was this guy called Raoul Moat who went on this kind of, um, this sort of killing, little killing kind of spree. And what Andrew Hankinson did was he managed to, like this guy was audio recording himself as he was doing this and he left all these kind of records and um, diaries about. And, and Andrew's kind of recreated exactly what happened and he's told the story purely through Raoul Moat's voice and through his own words. And it's an extraordinary document because you really see madness from the inside and it's it's a very kind of powerful um book and it's, it's very kind of sobering you know the story that we tell about evil people like Ralmo is that they're nasty evil people who've made this conscious choice to do this bad thing and uh, but you but for me when i read that book it was i, I really felt kind of inside his madness so it's a very kind of powerful book and you, again you see that hero making brain you know he in his world he's unfairly persecuted by the local police force and then he ends up trying to kill you know a couple of police officers and of course from the outside we can tell that actually it wasn't unfair at all he was a lunatic <laughs> but you know again it's that self-justifying brain so that's the first one for a novel I'd, on a kind of similar but completely different kind of bent I, I would i loved this book the idea of perfection by kate grenville who's an australian uh, novelist and she writes about these kind of um middle-aged couples that have to in order to kind of find happiness with each other, have to overcome their own kind of clingingness to themselves and to other people as, as being perfect. I think that's a sort of kind of a very powerful book. And, and the kind of, um, I guess the choice that kind of speaks most closely to selfie and what we've been talking about is this book by personality by Daniel Nettle, who is 
uh, this personality psychologist. This is a very short book that just talks the basics through the kind of the those five traits and, and talks about how these tiny differences in genes and these tiny differences in brain structure and our kind of hormonal systems can kind of end up with huge differences in kind of personality and experience and life itself, really. Will Storr, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Will for being here. Thank you, of course, to all of you. Uh, I hope you found that as enlightening as I did. If you made it to the end here, please take a moment and rate the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're doing your your podcast uh, listening. It does a lot to help the show. It only takes a minute. Thank you to my producer, Julian Meinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back just in a few days. Support for this show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync so that even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account. So ambitious companies have the precision, control, and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com.